Good morning. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. And we are here to see another morning and let's be glad in it. We are also witnessing um, uh, historic events of catastrophic proportion. And that event, of course, we know is Donald Trump and his administration. And I say that with all deep contempt. I am so puzzled as someone who teaches constitutional law as to why they would allow someone in the White House in the first place who has no concept of the Constitution if and when he ever reads the oath of office again, besides the one he repeated four years ago, January 20th, it says that he will protect and preserve the Constitution of the United States. If you look at your Constitution, that's all that the president is supposed to do, because it's thought of back in 1787 when the framers devised this compromise document that if the leader of the country preserved and protected the U.S. Constitution, then the other elements would fall in line. Of course, that also means the challenges to behaviors, laws, etc., that people believe are counter to the Constitution become those cases we know as U.S. Supreme Court cases of the law of the land. And then that falls under the auspices of the Constitution itself. There is so much that goes into being president, I guess, because there was a black man, Barack Obama, in the office for two terms. Any person thought they could scrape themselves off the street with all their fallibilities and occupy the office as well. And that's why we have what we have. Someone with such deep animosity toward the democratic process that he would undermine it at every turn and try to destroy this country on his way out of the door. This is what we're dealing with right now in this nation. And for those people who are these firm followers of Donald Trump, I have a few words to say for to you, but I won't do so because I want this station to keep its FCC license. This is what happens when we become cult followers, C-U-L-T followers, that is what I'm calling these people who, and that's in the Congress as well, continue to follow this man after everything he has done. The courts have shown time and time again that there is no voter fraud. This man lost fair and square, and children are taught not to be sore losers, shake the hand of their opponent who has bested them at this one game and live to fight another time. This man has decided that not only is he going to be a sore loser, he's going to destroy the sandbox in which he was playing. And that is what he's doing. Each moment that he's in the White House, he is unmantling, dismantling and destroying what we know to be our nation's basic foundations. And giving away our secrets to whatever dictator he pleases and deciding that he's going to use a scorched earth uh, uh, method to leave nothing there for Biden to work with so that he has to start with a deficit because this is the kind of mental illness we have been dealing with that this man possesses. And it's, it's a mental illness. And we've had a psychiatrist on this program before who discussed this mental illness of this person. But it's a deep-seated mental illness that I saw, you know, and probably this should have been a 25th Amendment failure to be able to have um, this office because of a mental disability, even though many people think of the 25th Amendment as an amendment when the president has a physical um, disability uh, allowing um, others to come in and take control. But then who would take control? Mike Pence or the other of the henchmen that he has in the office. Um, even his own Republican appointed federal judges have shown that there is no voter fraud. Even those people within the, the Republican Party of states where there's been a, a, a very large number of, of people, enough that, that Biden won, um, but even when this wasn't um, um, you know, 500,000 and maybe it was 100,000 who were the, the Biden voters who bested Donald Trump. They still, those Republicans still said that 
Biden, Joseph Biden won that state. And yet this is where we are. There is a transition that is going to take place. And we need to know that this transition is one that's based in not so much the Constitution itself. The Constitution says that on January 20th at noon, the president and vice president will be sworn in the office. That means that the outgoing president and vice president leave the office. There is also a Presidential Transition Act of 1963. This Presidential Transition Act of 1963 was created to facilitate an orderly and peaceful transition. That means that the incoming president is going to have to have uh, people in office. They don't just walk up that day and begin to um, exercise the, the office of the President of the United States on January 20th. There are many things that are involved to make sure that we have a smooth transition of power. And there are funds that the General Service Administration is required by law to release to the incoming administration so that their people can be put in offices. Now, we know that there are those who are in offices already, and so there has to be office space made available for people who are being hired and then going to Washington, D.C., from wherever their respective states are. And there are cabinet administrators who are now being hired as well. We see that. And there are 9,000, 9,000 federal jobs that must be filled by the new president. All of these and the pressing concerns of war and the economy and COVID are all pressing on this new president. And this um, mentally ill monster who is in the White House right now is causing such harm, but he doesn't care that he's harming the country, and he's never cared if he was harming the country. It goes back to something as simple as his his construction deals um, in Atlantic City, where he wanted to build casinos. He hired all of these small workers and their, their companies to, to build those casinos and then decided he wasn't going to pay them. And this is the kind of behavior that he has exhibited. But there are people who are still following him, despite no evidence like Rudy Giuliani, who has, has truly lost his mind in all ways, shapes and forms. And, and he is another who has decided that he is going to follow this person because it's, it's easier, I guess, to to rule in hell than share power in heaven. But one of the other aspects of this charge of voter fraud you see are in places where you have majority black populations. This has become of major concern. Majority black populations in which not only have they turned the outcome of the election in favor of Joseph Biden, but they've shown what has been shown since 1870 when black men gained the right to vote. This year is the 150th anniversary of the 15th Amendment when black men gained the right to vote. It's the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment when women gained the right to vote. So the power of the black vote in the 1800s was enough to turn the outcome of an election even then. When black voters vote when they go to the polls change happens this has been what has happened in this country since the 1800s and we need to go back to 1890 you know i have to put in a history lesson because 1890 is when they saw the power of the black vote and started then to create voter suppression not just by law, but by violence. And that voter suppression, of course, the grandfather clause. If your grandfather didn't vote, then you couldn't vote. Uh, voter suppression in the form of poll taxes, that you had to pay a tax before you could vote. Uh, but literacy tests, you had to take a test on the Constitution, an essay test, when the majority of people in the country, not just people of African descent who had been denied an education under slavery, but people in the country were illiterate. And so these are the things that were put in place, and just to make sure by law and violence, by 1896 is when we had Plessy versus Ferguson. That was then uh, the apartheid that we have had in this country under the law of the land. That was then um, the brutality of which was a part of civil rights organizations um, from the very beginning, the NAACP and Charles Hamilton Houston and so many others, Louise Lassiter, Ella Baker, so many have given their lives and livelihoods to try to undo the damage 
of apartheid racial segregation by law that was instituted in 1896 under Plessy v. Ferguson, the vestiges are remnants of which we are living with today. So those attacks on Atlanta, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Maricopa County, those attacks that go on and on and, 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 and these ideas that the black vote could be this powerful, what you need to look for in the future, as soon as we have some victories under law and in custom and tradition, you're going to see voter suppression then turn into a different type of demon and try once again we have the photo ID laws. We have uh, um, these very decrepit voting machines. And then we had those replaced and they didn't replace them with enough. So you have long lines of, of nine to 10 hours in order to vote. The, the, the fact that people with felony convictions can't vote. And then they, of course, give felony convictions like candy to people of African descent and other people of color. These mechanisms are mechanisms that have been put in place to crush black African-American progress and to undermine political power. And this has been going on since slavery ended in 1865. And without our coming together and realizing that this country has had this issue in its fabric from the beginning, all of this we need to understand is going on right in front of us. History was made. History is continuing to be made in ways that are good and bad. We're going to also talk about, and we must talk about on this show, the pandemic and its effect on all of us. At this point, we have over 12,400,000 cases, over 257,000 deaths. And these are just the deaths by COVID, the ones that have been registered by COVID. We know there are many other people who are dying of issues, conditions, and consequences relative and related to COVID. And I've lost friends, and I've lost people I care about. I live under constant threat of my mother, who has a compromised immune system um, contracting coronavirus, and so many other people are living with this. And the, the G20 met and Donald Trump decided that he would play golf. And yet you follow him. Those people listening who still are followers of this man, you don't question anything. You still follow him. And so he, he's got a bridge to sell you to. And of course, if you drink bleach, then I guess you would follow him no matter what. But in New York City... And other major cities, the question becomes, with all of this going on, what is it that we are to do as far as our children's education? How do we protect ourselves in this new wave? Is it safe to go to schools? Our own Dr. Candace Johnson is back, and she's going to help us understand COVID and how COVID is affecting our lives and how we can better protect ourselves. She is going to tell us and advise us. And, you know, I'll ask those questions. And after Candace, I want you to call in. I want to hear from you. It's been a little while. 212-209-2877. 212-209-2877. I want to hear from you. That will be after Dr. Candace Johnson. 212-209-2877. And of course, become a member, become my BAI buddy. I've missed you and I hope you've missed me. We need you. We need your support. So if you can, become a BAI buddy. And I look forward to getting my new WBAI coffee cup. So I want to do that. So with a contribution, you can also get that coffee cup. So when you call in to make a contribution, ask about that coffee mug, and we can have our coffee, tea, beverage in the morning together. I'll be right back with Dr. Candace Johnson after this musical break. These are tough times we live in, but still we can't just give in. We must stand tall and live strong. It's up to the youth to live on. 
and carry this torch we pass down. You see, I know it's not the last round. In the next generation, my faith is unwavering. My confidence in you is unshakable because I know that you're willing and far beyond capable of doing all that must be done. But to do it all, we must be as one. Life can be better than most of us dream. Yeah. So once you take the reins, believe in your greatness, which lies within. And for the better, this world will change. I see that you want it. I see that you're working for it. So don't take no days off. It's gonna be on. I see that you love it. I want you to know that before you can see it, you gotta believe it. You're the generation of tomorrow. The pursuit starts today. And all time is borrowed. So you have learned the ways. You are not. You are not. Oh, I repeat. You are not. Put on the search and lose. And you are hot. You are hot. Yeah, I repeat it. But you are hot. So do what you do. And we gon' do it big. We gon' make a scene. We see that it's in your heart. We can be the change. That's change. And that's Jerome Dupree and Neo. Change, change. Neo and Jerome Dupree. You really need to listen to that. And I know it's a powerful song and it just meant a lot to me, especially as it speaks to young people. But remember, it also means the young at heart. So here we have our Dr. Candace Johnson after uh, many months who's come back to talk to us about this uh, new wave or is it fourth wave? We're not sure, but she's an assistant professor in family community health nursing at Community Commonwealth School of Nursing in Richmond, Virginia. Welcome. Good morning, Dr. Johnson. Good morning, Gloria, and thanks so much for having me back. I appreciate you having me here. Well, we call you our Dr. Fauci, and, and we know that you're um, a, an expert in public health, and there are so many questions, but I want to start off with this one. As we go through this wave of this uptick, there are two things that have been talked about very often in uh, New York City, and one of them, the most important, is the education of our children. So some people have debated whether or not schools have actually become super spreaders, where others say the schools are very safe. What do you say? Well, I say, first of all, New York remains a model for COVID-19 containment following that enormous outbreak that happened in the spring of this year. You all were able to bring your, um, your percent positivity rates down from 50% to 1%, which is just amazing. So with that said, if your schools are only hitting the 3% positive positivity rate that was set by your state, by your governor, then you're actually doing better than a, than a whole lot of the country who's uh, up there in the numbers, in the double digits, um, speaking statewide with a lot of the states in the um, south and in the northern midwestern United States, like Mississippi uh, in the south and Wyoming, Iowa, South Dakota, having rates as high as 77, 86 percent. Oh so with that said, uh, with, in New York currently being at around, um, I think you're around 3 percent, 2.8 percent, then you all are doing really well when compared to the rest of the nation. But with that said, those are very um, reasonable percentages there with the 3 percent threshold that you have, that your governor has set there for, for uh, closing the schools. So that, as you know, the schools are governed locally and not at the state level. So that 3% positivity rate ranges from zone to zone. But once you all are declared an orange zone or your school zone is declared an orange zone, the schools would then temporarily close. And then uh, there would be a reverse course and the schools would have about four days to sanitize. And then after that, uh, 100% of the students would be tested. And then following that, anybody who's positive gets to uh, go back home, and anybody who's uh, negative will return to the uh, to the 
to the rest of the student population there that's uh, not negative, uh, uh, that's not positive. So at the end of the day, that's a pretty good setup there for your um, public health program involving the schools, and you all are actually doing pretty well when compared to the rest of the nation. But our schools are closed and other schools are open across the country. And this is the debate. And this happened so suddenly. I mean, Mayor de Blasio made this decision on uh, Sunday night for Monday morning, and it's been uh, chaos. But here's my question. in the beginning, it was thought that children couldn't get this, and we know that's a fallacy, um, right. that children can. But, you know, when you're balancing the, the socialization of our children, the education of our children, there, there's just been such a loss as far as educational right. progress that began in the spring and is carried now into the fall. Parents are trying to work their own jobs, teach their children at home, and stay safe in both measures. And at the same time, how are we to know that it's not safe? I mean, if this point, if the child can go to the store with a parent, why can't the child go to school? I mean, would you advise Mayor de Blasio to allow our school children to go to school? Well, I do think it's a good idea to set a reasonable percent threshold. And it sounds like raising that threshold is on the table in uh, in New York right now. So the idea that looking at a higher percent threshold um, makes sense to me um, because you all are doing so well. You clearly have public trust there, and you have done a lot of the social action that it takes to keep those numbers low. With that said, um, I, perhaps I might advise that with this program, the way you have it set up, to, to in fact go ahead and take those four days off and sanitize because here's, what not, here's what's not being said. And that is if there uh, is a flare-up or a outbreak in a local um, area, that will have far-reaching ramifications on the surrounding community. Because this virus, you have to think of it as an exponential uh, growth so that when one person uh, touches another person, you have to think about all the different people that they come into contact with. And with that said, we could quickly, quickly uh, double those numbers, triple those numbers in a very short period of time. So. With that said, uh, if there's only 10% of the people spreading 68 to 80% of the cases, so if they aren't these little children who tend to be asymptomatic, then it's probably uh, adolescents and teenagers who are um, doing a lot of the disease spread. Um, But basically the asymptomatic ones are the problem uh, for our society because they're basically responsible for 68 to 80% of the spread. So you only need one. Uh, in your midst, and um, that becomes an exponential problem for all the non-infected people. Well, well, all I know is that school children in Canada, school children in Europe are still attending school. Mm-hmm. And the flare-ups come and they go, right. but the flare-ups aren't in the schools. The flare-ups are within the adult population. And I think it's important that you pointed out that the asymptomatic people are, are, the, are the spreaders. Because they believe they're healthy and they don't understand that they are not. They are the ones spreading the diseases. And once again, we have so many people. And I saw even a a program uh, in which you had Trump protesters out without a mask. You know, and I I just, to me, I'm sorry, they're murderers. Because if you're going to walk around without a mask and you have people with vulnerable um, immune systems, that you know that you could be spreading this disease, then it should be a conspiracy to commit some type of murder or crime. And I and I only base that on the, what we said to people during the HIV crisis in which they were, there were certain legal consequences, criminal consequences to people Absolutely. who had HIV and continued to have this type of behavior. And we're not adding that in this case, dealing with these people without a mask. And for those politicians who attended that party, they should have, been, they should have gotten fined. They, we, we had this big political party here in which you had um, politicians who attended this surprise birthday party, and majority of them are white. And I'm going to call this out because when you look at the people who have received summonses for not wearing a mask and all of that, this majority people of color. 
And so I called uh, Bill de Blasio out on this. You know, this whole Dante, you know, you're cool with the black people, that ended with me. When I see what's happening with police officers and protesters and how they're the protesters, I'm going to do a show on that soon, are being abused by police officers. When I see the majority summonses going to people of color and yet you have a, a full video of a party filled with white people, majority of those parties, there were a couple of sprinkles of people of color, but majority white people in a party without masks, and there is no fine, no summonses, no criminal consequences. This is the racism I see in our criminal justice system that starts from the very beginning, the core of the concept that they're beyond reach, and yet some kid playing basketball without a mask will get a summons. Um, I want to go back to this other issue that I said there were two. One was our children going to school. The other was this vaccination. There are many people who, and Donald Trump, because he has done so little, and and Mike Pence around um, helping us trust anything they say because they're such liars. Um, But that now has made people fear and distrust the vaccine. And we know that the vaccines are coming. And how do we, um, well, what's your take on the vaccine? Let's start with that. And we know there are several in the mix. Right. And there's three of them that are on the uh, stage front right now because they are about to um, approach the FDA along with some independent panelists to look at the data on these. Um, They're currently in phase three trials, which is 30,000 individuals taking either a placebo or uh, their versions of the vaccine. And in fact, the early data are showing that about uh, 95% effectiveness is being seen in a couple of these vaccines. Uh, The other one is 90% effective. Those are really high numbers. And there are a lot of ethical questions uh, stirring about and uh, as to who's going to take the vaccine first, who's going to have access access to the vaccine, uh, who's considered um, highest risk. So uh, there are a lot of um, ethical issues on the table. That said, um, healthcare workers are, are first in line. Whether they want it or not, they are considered first in line. And, in fact, one in three nurses says uh, that uh, he or she would not take the vaccine if it was offered today. So there are a lot of issues that need to be um, addressed. But the speed of these vaccines have a lot to do with the the mechanisms by which they operate, Uh, one of them uh, using mRNA, which is a, a version of DNA. So it's creating proteins and doing things that we've never before seen done in vaccines. So that would explain how expedited um, and how quickly we were able to produce this vaccine. Um, That said, I would want to see the data that is going to be coming from the FDA. They meet on December 8th, 9th, and 10th with these independent panelists, and they're going to talk about uh, whether or not these vaccines should move forward and whether or not we'll get to have emergency use authorization. With that said, there would only be initially, uh, before January, only about uh, 20 to 40 million doses available. So, um, and it takes two doses per person because there is a booster mm. shot. So with that said, we'd only be inoculating about 10 million individuals in the uh, population. Uh, so it would be springtime, late spring, uh, actually early summer, before we could even get to that place where we're at about a third of the country uh, having access to the vaccine. So we still have a ways to go to get to where about two-thirds of the country has the vaccine, and that's about 400 million doses. So uh, America has ordered about uh, 200 uh, million doses from one of the foreign companies that's producing the vaccine. So the fact is it still will be mid-year next year before Uh, just the average person is able to go in and get access to that vaccine. So we still have some time to figure out what's happening around vaccine hesitancy because currently 42% of the country says that uh, they would not take the vaccine if they were offered today. And if it's 90% effective, that means even given the numbers you've you've stated – 10% of the people will believe that they are uh, protected when they are not. That's right. And the numbers threaten to be much higher than 10%, just with the fact that so many people don't want to even take it in the first place. So, yes, there will be a false sense of security. And much like what you were talking about earlier with the mask, 
vaccines have been heavily politicized as well. So you will see people who downplay the severity of the virus uh, saying that uh, it's not necessary to take the, the virus and we'll never get to herd immunity if that is the mentality. And if that is the case, then this disease will become what we call in public health endemic to the population and we won't have the opportunity to eradicate it, which is what we shoot for in public health when it comes to a disease. So like we did polio, we eradicated it so that we don't even need to get the vaccine anymore. Um, we would have to do that to coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2 if we truly wanted to be able to walk uh, safely in the streets um, without having to wear a mask or without the fear of coming down with a uh, COVID-19. Now, I recall, and some other people may be in this age group, when we had trick-or-treat and it was for March of Dimes. And we would go from door to door. Yes, I had a corny childhood. We would go from door to door <laughs> collecting dimes for March of Dimes. And it was to be used for research for polio. Mm-hmm. And so when you say we eradicated polio, then that's one of the diseases that we used to get shots for. And mm-hmm. then I remember when we no longer got shots for polio. But there are mm-hmm. other diseases we still get shots for. And there are many people, and this is the controversy taking place, you know, years before we got to this point with the pandemic with coronavirus, in which you had parents who did not want to vaccinate their children because they believed that those vaccinations at that time were dangerous and caused autism. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. in this particular scenario, we are having people not just have fears about vaccinations in the first place, but also have fears and concerns and trust issues regarding this particular vaccination, given the speed by which it was created. Absolutely. So when you mention vaccine hesitancy, mm-hmm. this is something you, I guess, have studied and it's normal. And how do you overcome this? Well, I have been part of some COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy groups, and it sounds like some of the themes that have been coming up are some of the ones that we've been talking about this morning. But um, they primarily have to do with trust, uh, especially in our minority populations where there's this long history of distrust with the biomedical system and all of the um, um, ethical violations that have occurred against minority uh, people, uh, specifically African-Americans who still remain very hesitant to take uh, vaccines and other types of uh, treatments and protocols associated with um, modern uh, medicine. So with that said, um, you know, that is one of the main things, trust that's coming up. But we also have things coming up around safety, as you mentioned. So one thing that would have to happen, uh, and um, this is something that's coming down from um, the main governmental health agencies, such as the CDC and the National Institutes of Health. And that is that we have to um, look at the safety data that's going to come out from these FDA talks that are happening on December the 8th through the 10th. Um, we have access to the preliminary data in the um, articles that are coming out online. So we public health folks are looking at that. And for as much as it has been um, made available to us, again, the the vaccines look uh, efficacious. They look as though they would um, reduce the uh, acquisition of coronavirus in someone who is uh, naive or someone who is uninfected. So with that said, I think what's going to happen is that people are going to begin to take the vaccine and they're going to hear about side effects or adverse effects in that first wave of people who take it primarily the healthcare providers and those older adults living in um, nursing homes. Those are going to be the first round of people to take it. So naturally, we're going to observe them for months after they begin to take it. And we're going to report that data. And as long as that data is made publicly available and the government is transparent about adverse reactions or any side effects, then I believe the people will begin after a while to begin uh, to uptake on the vaccine. And again, as I mentioned, we do have through the middle of next year to really approach the question of how we can truly get to uh, herd immunity and how we can uh, take advantage of the many vaccines that will probably be available then. The upside also is that people who really want to take the vaccine will probably have the chance to take it because there will be still always a considerable amount of people who just won't be comfortable taking it uh, anytime soon. And my last question, because I know we're running short on time, 
and uh, I'm talking to Dr. Candace Johnson, who is a assistant professor in family and community health nursing at Virginia Commonwealth School of Nursing in Virginia. Um, I am looking at um, some of the rumors, we'll say, and I hate to be a rumor monger. I, I dislike that immensely. But someone mentioned that um, taking the flu shot would be helpful. Is this true? Well, we we don't want double pandemics or triple pandemics. We have so many different epidemics happening right now. And flu is one of those things that we have to contend against every season. And in certain populations, flu vaccine is very safe. Um, it actually shown, has shown to be more problematic in uh, obese individuals. This is something that we know. Um, and we know that it's problematic in people with compromised immune systems. Other than that, the flu vaccine is uh, purported to be uh, relatively safe with relatively few side effects. Flu vaccine also has to contend against people's uh, fears and uh, perceptions about it not being safe. That being said, if uh, you were concerned about an older adult loved one and you wanted to um, protect them in every way you can, and they have been um, able to take the flu vaccine in, 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 in prior years without any complications, it would not hurt to get the flu vaccine. Uh, but, but, it, but it will not be something that would offer protection against COVID at all? Uh, no, it does not work that way. No, it, it wouldn't. The, the, bi- so, the biomechanisms are completely different. Coronavirus and influenza virus are completely uh, different viruses, so they don't respond to vac- the, uh, one vaccine in that same way. The hope with uh, encouraging people to take the flu vaccine is that they won't, in fact, um, you won't have the hospitals full of people with the flu, um, but in fact, those respirators and that oxygen remains uh, open for people who are experiencing the the COVID-19 um, uh, infection. And, uh, and, and with the current numbers being the way they are, ta- uh, topping 200,000 cases per day, we need our hospitals to stay untaxed. So uh, that's where we are with flu vaccine. Thank you so much. And for those people who are traveling for Thanksgiving, what is the advice that you would give them? Well, I would, I would have to say that I'm really worried about the fact that um, the travel is at the highest it's been since uh, the, the spring months when we first went into lockdown. It's very um, disconcerting that so many people are flying by air travel where the quarters tend to be cramped. So I'd have to say uh, to those people to really consider face coverings and eye protection, including the face shield, um, maybe using a straw to drink water and not and trying to keep the mask on uh, for as long as possible, considering using an N95 or the highest level of protection that they have, and uh, get air frequently, you know, circulate air and not, and not be stagnant, because in fact, this is what, uh, I, it's not technically airborne, but it behaves very much like an airborne virus. So, Yes, you can get it in areas that are poorly ventilated for sitting in that concentrated area with a super spreader for longer than 15 minutes. And again, remember, super spreaders tend to be asymptomatic. So don't look for someone who's sneezing or someone who has runny nose or wet eyes. Um, In fact, that person who's likely to transfer the virus to you will be someone who doesn't show any symptoms at all. And for those of us who are staying home for Thanksgiving and may be around other people, what do you advise the, those um, gatherings to, to, to keep in mind? I would say that, um, you know, if at all possible, meet on Google Meet. You know, if your kids have Chromebooks, um, FaceTime works, iPads have this as well. Um, you know, Zoom is possible with your college students. But if you, can, if you need to meet with family, if you're going to be with family, Meeting outdoors is not a uh, bad idea. If you can um, eat alfresco, it's a better idea. You know, you still need to wear a mask and maintain social distance as well. Open windows and keep the rooms ventilated. Spread out among the house and move around a lot. Don't stay seated in the same spot laughing and hollering and singing like we like to do and projecting those uh, mouth fluids, uh, aerosols is what they're called in public health. It's a little hot air balloon type uh, wrapping envelope around the virus that allows it to float and lift in the air. So wear your masks and even especially indoors. And if there is a super spreader parent, then you are at high risk. So it's possible for people to take COVID-19 tests before they attend 
these events, that would be awesome because then you would catch up on whoever those asymptomatics are and then they can avoid the event as not to spread that uh, uh, disease. But use hand sanitizer often. And if you have older adults in the mix, just consider keeping them out. Obese people as well, because I hate to say it, but if you're obese, uh, you have much more likely a chance of doing poorly with COVID-19 than any other factor uh, or comorbidity at all. Obesity, uh, meaning a BMI of greater than 30, puts you at high risk for doing very poorly with COVID-19. Thank you so much, Dr. Candace Johnson, Assistant Professor in Family and Community Health Nursing at Virginia Commonwealth School of Nursing. And we know that you're going to be headed to Detroit and good travels and good work. I'm sure you'll do exceptionally well. And we'll look forward to talking with you, if not again this year, but exactly, please, on the calendar, WBAI Law of the Land in the New Year. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Gloria. Thank you. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We are just able to have a conversation with a professional at that length because it's WBAI. No other station is going to allow you to get that much information over this amount of time. This is why you support a station like WBAI. This is why it's necessary for you to pledge and give your your support financially at 516-620-3602, 516-620-3602. And when you call, um, please say you're supporting Law of the Land. Please know that I work so hard to bring you the very best in the information that's required in these very difficult times. We're all in this together. Yes, it's like a family, and we're going to be getting together for family over these um, holiday seasons that we have, whatever your background may be. You might have just ended a holiday season, but you have all types of people in the family. And so you have my, my brother voted for Trump. You have all these different people in the family, but we're still family. So we need to understand that we've got to have each other's backs, no matter what our different viewpoints may be. And that information was helpful then I am honored to have given it to you. We're going to take a short musical break, and then we're going to take a couple of your calls at 212-209-2877. We'll be right back. It's your thing. It's your thing. That is Lou Donaldson. It's your thing. And I think it's so very important for us to know 
that it's your thing. You do what you want to do. And as I pointed out, it can be your thing. Um, but let's do it logically and maybe with a linear focus on constitutional law. And you can do your thing. But keep in mind, other people's things have to get done, too, if that makes sense. What we have now on Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall, WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org, is our open line for you to tell us what is going on. We have so much. Is it about the vote? Is it about the pandemic? Is it about the schools being closed and our children being educated at home and our overtaxed parents trying to educate them and keep a roof over their heads? Um, this is uh, Law of the Land, and you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Um, first of all, thank you for being there. Thank you for who you are. You're wonderful. Let me get to the point. It came across my mind just now listening, excellent show, that maybe we should have a, a black, all black doctors, because I'm not taking the, uh, the shot. Let the black organization of doctors administer the injections coming directly from some of those that also work making those uh, uh, insolence or whatever it is. Let them be have our own distribute and give the injections. Maybe we can trust them better than an all-white. And we don't know whether the serums are going to be the same coming into our neighborhood as it is going elsewhere. And thank you so much for being there, and I support you completely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And those listeners may say, oh, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Why should she say that? If you knew the history of the expect experimentation, the, the expectation in which um, black patients go into a doctor and find the, the racism, and it's not just racial prejudice, it's racism at the extreme racial um, um, implicit bias in, in, in a minimum then you would understand why there is such concern within communities of color, not just African-Americans, but the experimentations that have happened in Puerto Rico, that have happened on Native Americans, that, that have happened on Latinos in, in the Southwest. And so much has happened in this nation's history that has made it so much of a, uh, a incredible experience. And I don't mean incredible in a good way. I mean it lack of credibility when it comes to the type of health care that people of color receive. And I've seen it with my own eyes. I've experienced it in my own life. And I understand that I have insurance. I try to be an intelligent, well-informed person. And yet I've seen the disparity in healthcare that has affected my life and the people I care about. So that's why there are many people who are concerned and those people of color are concerned and the poor should be concerned as well because they have been duped into being, you know, the objects of experimentation in so many ways, shapes and forms by our medical system. Dr. Sims's statue was taken down from the Upper East Side because he had been someone, a white male doctor who had experimented on black women, experimented on black women without anesthesia, the Tuskegee experiment we know in Tuskegee, Alabama, in which uh, black men who had contra contracted syphilis were not given an antibiotic when it was available, just so our doctors could watch the effect of syphilis on a human body. This is what this nation has done. If you have a chance to watch or any of these programs, you can on YouTube if you find them. But you can also read the book Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington. If you read that book Medical Apartheid, then you'll have a better idea why people are so concerned. We have time for one more call. And if we could, um, you're on Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Hello. Yes. Hi, you're on. Good morning. Uh, good morning. My name is Don. I'm from New York. My concern is sending these kids to school is that this is like inviting the virus to come back home. I am so paranoid for that effect, and it's our kids because we're the ones that have to go back to work because we can't afford the economy. I had dropped, but the whole thing that this president has implemented is that stay home and die. 
once we wasn't dying quick enough, go back to work so you can die quicker, and then open up the, the, the economy so more people would be exposed to it. So just like your last phone call, I am so suspicious about this. And one of the, the first experiments that they did was giving <laughs> small pop blankets to the Indians when they first came here to America. Thank you so much, and keep up the good work. Thank you, thank you. This is a concern that we're going to have to have a whole show on. I can see that right now. And also the National Medical Association is the Association of Black Doctors. And of course, it's not restricted to all black doctors, but it was created because the American Medical Association did not allow doctors of color to join at one time just like the American Bar Association didn't allow um, uh, lawyers of color to join at one time, and we have a National Bar Association. This nation has been a parallel nation for more of its history than it's been one in which there's been integration and freedom between groups. So we need to understand the history of this nation is one of segregation, of racial oppression, and of diabolical means to destroy kill and eliminate people of color. If you didn't want to just be a laborer, then you didn't have any viable, it was thought, viable reason to exist in this country. And that is the history. And you can read my book. I have a new one out. She Took Justice, The Black Woman, Law and Power. And I start with Queen Nzinga and go up to Shirley Chisholm. So she took justice, the black woman law and power, and it's going to be released. Yes, right now. I mean, it's brand new right out of the box. And so um, if you have a chance, please read my book. She took justice, the black woman law and power. And you could see what black women have had to do in this nation's history to fight for the ability to do what I'm doing right now, just to talk with you. It's not that black women gained intelligence in the last 50 years. We have always had this intelligence, and yet at the same time were used in such diabolical, sinful ways. It's just cruel and unusual, and it was legal under law. Yes. And that's why the book is She Took Justice, The Black Woman, Law, and Power, because law was used to oppress for much longer in this society than it's been used as a tool for liberation. As we end our program, I want to thank you for allowing me to be someone to bring you this information. And I, I feel that I, I have to empower. I, I am allowed by your graciousness to be on this show. And, and please, in support WBAI 516-620-3602, become a BAI buddy, support Law of the Land. I want to empower. I want to inform. I want you to be the best you can be no matter what the situation. And so I'll keep trying as hard as I can. I might not always get it right, but I'm trying. And if you try too, then we can make the world a better place for these young people and for the, those who are young at heart because we all have so much more to give and we only have a certain amount of time in which to give it. And that's the one thing that the richest person on the planet has in common with that person of little means. We only have 24 hours in a day. How are you using your time? Are you using it to make this a better community, a better city, a better country? Let's see. But for right now, I thank you, Michael G. I thank our guest, Dr. Candace Johnson, and you, our listeners, on WBAI. 99.5 FM, WBAI.org, Law of the Land. Until next week, I'll see you on the radio.